Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. In the early part of the 20th century, booze was illegal during Prohibition, but marijuana was not. It remained legal but regulated until the 1970s. In 1969, Timothy Leary was arrested and his case made it to the Supreme Court. The court invalidated part of the old laws as as a violation of the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. But the result was that Congress passed a new law, the Controlled Substances Act which criminalized the possession or sale of cannabis. That remains the case to this day. While still prohibited by federal law, today 44 states and the District of Columbia have laws on the books that legalize cannabis for either medical or recreational use. And according to a 2019 poll, 91% of Americans support making medical cannabis legal and 67% think that cannabis should be legal full stop. Despite that trend, for federal purposes, it's still classed as a Schedule I drug, on par with heroin, LSD, and ecstasy, which means that it is not legal in any form. It is against federal law to grow, sell, or use cannabis for any purpose, including medical purposes. The sale of cannabis, legal or not, is reportable on your tax return. However, since cannabis remains illegal for federal purposes, The IRS still takes the position that some related expenses are disallowed under Section 280E of the tax code. You can imagine that this is confusing for business owners. To talk about what this means for taxpayers, I've asked Katie Maxson-Landis to the show. Since earning her Oregon CPA in 2011, Katie has been a tireless advocate for small business clients and works diligently to advance accounting best practices in the cannabis industry. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, I'm so pleased you asked me. It's a great topic to have a conversation about, especially since we're heading into tax season. Exactly. And I think it's particularly interesting because there's a lot of misinformation that has been shared about cannabis, especially as it relates to tax. And it's kind of interesting because timing wise, the IRS is finally catching up a little bit. And, right. you know, they just even they even launched their new uh, business web page for the industry. So which I know is mixed. I've heard mixed res- results on what people think about that. So I'd be interested to hear your comments. But kind of coming out of the gate, what do you see as probably the biggest myth or the most confusing thing for taxpayers? Like if you could only say one thing today that people remember, what would it be about about the industry? For taxpayers and I think for tax preparers, it's the same thing. It's the application of 280E on a tax return for preparers and in daily life for the business owners. So code section 280E is eight lines of, it's the simplest little thing, and it is airtight. Brighter people than us somehow decided to make a little code section that's so incredibly punitive, we did not see the results of it until we have this federal state disconnect for a substance that no one, in at least in my lifetime, I did not expect to see this change happen. So section 280E is a real problem. 
what does it mean like for folks who aren't familiar with 280E? Like what does it do? Like what's kind of the, the idea behind it? So the TLDR on 280E is this. Congress does not like the way you make your money. So they're going to tax you to death on your profit, your ill-gotten gains from a cannabis or drug dealing operation. It doesn't matter. They have the same position on meth that they do on cannabis, which I mm-hmm. feel I feel most people think differently about. Yes. But the tax code does not. So code section 280E says no credit or deduction. So what that means is if you're as a tax practitioner, if you're looking at a profit and loss, everything under expenses can't be used as a tax deduction. And and what does that mean for business owners? Because I think this is the piece that's important for folks who aren't familiar with the industry to understand. Like, I I think that tax professionals need to understand the 280E piece. But what it means to businesses, I think, is important for the general public. And what does that mean? So what it means for businesses is if you are, if you grow, produce, distribute, or sell cannabis in any way, shape, or form, you are only allowed to take the expense, the cost related to creating or procuring, so purchasing that cannabis as a tax deduction against your gross receipts, your income. Now, this is where I spend a lot of time researching the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, the cost of goods sold, 471 regulations, both the new one that came in with Tax Cut and Jobs Act and the old existing ones. Manufacturers for years and years and years have been struggling with how do I create, attach a cost to my good so that when I sell it, I know the amount that I take away from my income that shows me profit. At our best, that's what accountants are supposed to be doing. We're -hmm. supposed to be populating these little line items in cost of goods sold that give us true incomes, that the service calls it. Gross profit is incomes. And that's what we have to accurately reflect on a tax return for cannabis. The takeaway I tell my clients with in relationship to all the way they spend their money, because I do a lot of education for my clients on training them where and where not to spend their money, Mm -hmm. is if you spend your money on anything that promotes your business, that sells your cannabis, that deals with the normal operations of your business, you may as well have put that money in your living room and lit it on fire for as good as it will do you on a tax return. You must have business expense to run a business, period. You cannot not have business expenses. So you will always have some amount of ordinary recurring business expense. But if your choice is to spend $10,000 this month on advertising or spend $10,000 putting a security system in that controls and secures the inventory that you have, One of those is deductible in my tax position, in my opinion, and one of them is not. So do you spend a lot of time, like in addition to the education, kind of thinking of ways to recharacterize 
expenses? Because I know this is something we, you know, as a tax attorney, we do a lot. Like when, yes. when a new tax, you know, TCJ or, wh- or whatever yep. comes through, you're like, okay, how can we look at this differently? Yeah, I absolutely do. I feel like when I feel like I'm kind of the best blend of a CPA and an attorney for not being an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of issue spotting. I do a lot of fact checking. I do a lot of conversation with clients. I do, I look at before I, before I file a tax return or push a return to, to, to prep, I go through the books and records of the client, every line item, every charge, every time, because the, because how you spend your money is important. And it's, and it's where we stray as tax practitioners, because we're far more conservative than attorneys. Most of the time we stray into the potentially feeling like we've got this frivolous return position, which mm-hmm. isn't going to help anybody in cannabis. When you make an, a, when you make frivolous arguments and you take them to the, to the either tax court or to the federal court and you lose and you lose and you lose, you don't help the people that come behind you <laughs> right. when they're trying to make an argument that doesn't look like the argument you've made, but you're in the same industry. So I, yes, I spend a lot of time Again, I am pleased that you have moved to BNA because to Bloomberg because the BNA work paper that they put out back in 2011 or maybe before was the foundational piece of research that I used to start determining what can I put into cost of goods sold. It is the 471 versus 263 cap A allowable costs, cost one, two, and three. What must you expense? What must you in capitalize? And what do you have options about? And so my tax return position and my tax education has always really been predicated upon what's the regular rule? How do we look at it differently for cannabis, which is kind of built backwards and upside down? And where's the line that strays into fraud? <laughs> because once I know that line that I'm not going to cross, well, I feel like I have a whole population of risk seeking versus you know risk tolerance conversations with my client and with myself to continually have about expense or about cost. So my tax position is really, really, really nuanced because I take the IRS at its word. Do not misrepresent incomes. Is this hard? Because and the the reason I'm asking is as you're talking is because you mentioned risk. And I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like folks who are willing to invest in cannabis businesses probably have a different risk tolerance than a lot of other folks because of the 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 duality right of the the federal and the state so yes i feel no. like so i feel like it could be is there a is there a difference in terms of the way that folks are willing or or, or is it the opposite that they're more conservative because they're worried about getting caught so i think that I, that is a great question because i really feel like oregon has done cannabis differently than the other states. And, and, you know, we are, we're going into our sixth year. So, you know, your most of the country is behind us in this. Mm-hmm. And my practice has changed dramatically in who I've seen since 2012. So 2012 it was the first year that I, that I started having conversations about bookkeeping. 2013, I, I was my first tax return filing year. I filed that tax return wrong. I filed it wrong. And I had to call the board of accountancy freaking out as a young CPA, risk tolerant over here, <laughs> right? freaking out. How do I fix this? How do I fix this? Are you going to take my license? And they were like, wow, slow your roll, kid. You'll be fine. You know, and gave me the steps to do that. But boy, we learn by making errors. 
So sure. there's no way you can't make it. There's no way you can't mess it up and learn in cannabis, in my opinion. So you have to be okay with where you're willing to mess it up, which is involves heavy duty conversations with other practitioners, your own ethics lawyer and your client. But risk to, I saw back in 2012, the early adopters, the people that were coming in who, who really had pie in the sky and really thought, oh my God, if I rush into this industry, if I bring my medical sort of gray, illegal, n- illicit, pseudo-blessed medical cannabis business into the light of day, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm going to be able to sell to everybody and get out in three years. Well, guess what? That's not true. But those people who are very, very, very comfortable not filing tax returns, not keeping books and records, not doing the court, you know, the regulation and have been in an unregulated industry for their entire time. This is not a new industry, people. This is a just a legalizing one. Right. <laughs> it's not new. It's been here, which means it has rules and norms and mores. And I can't tell you how crazy it is to sit across the table from a 38-year-old grown man who's never filed a tax return, who owns two homes he paid for in cash and put his kids through school and has no credit card debt. Why? Because he doesn't pay taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, do you have a social security number? Like his (laughs) risk, his risk tolerance is so, he's risk thinking. Right. He was so uncomfortable. I am the devil to him. I had to ask him actually to step outside. He was also white knuckling. I had to ask him to step outside and medicate. Please go smoke to relax and come back into my office and talk to me. So is that that's a sea change for those folks. And then you have new folks, of us. right? So how do, you, how, how do you reconcile those two? Because I would think that would be hard as a practitioner to kind of you know, because sometimes you, you feel like you have to be all things to all people because you're, you're not just oh, doing the tax return, right? You're, yep. you're like counseling them and giving them business advice and all of it and listening to them talk about being scared. And oh, yeah, so absolutely. How, how hard is it to switch gears from that guy versus the 25 year old who came in because they think that this is a great investment opportunity? Let's table that for one sec because I want to go right back to just the risk tolerance piece. So okay. in 2012, 12, 13, 14, here, we legalized for adult use in 15, but really didn't get going in South 16 from a rules and regulation standpoint. Here is this early adopted population that's very, very, very interested in getting in quickly, monetizing what they have and getting the fuck out, frankly. Mm-hmm. There was a whole pack of venture capitalists that were in on that and a whole pack of people that were willing to take incredible risks, make incredible train wrecks, accounting-wise, to do really, really fast deals. So I think that for anyone getting interested in this industry where it is just coming into the light of day in their state, they need to be really on top of that population of people that want to get in, get rich, get out, and leave the potato to be held by somebody else. Okay. So the second population of people in, that I'm seeing now and, and since about 2018 have been seeing are very much more risk savvy people, people who have business acumen and expense, and they're picking up distressed assets because these folks can't pay their tax bills and they're willing right. to sell cheap. Mm-hmm. And you have an entirely different population. So it is becoming more conservative in some ways, more business savvy. But what you still have is people that are willing to invest in this industry are willing to lose this money. So as a tax practitioner, you're always fighting against be more aggressive, be more aggressive, be more aggressive. 
get my tax bill down, get my tax bill down. And so you have to, you have to really have an ironclad position. Again, where's that line that strays into fraud? Well, it's based on you. You sign that tax return, sir or ma'am. If you do not like the tax position, do not sign it. Right. Period. Period. You have the power, not the client. The client is not right in this. You have the power. So that's why it's really important to have a risk to understand where your risk tolerance or your risk your risk is your 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 ability as a practitioner to understand what you're willing to do because you have to manage your client. I have very difficult conversations with clients all the time, and what I do with switching that hat is something that I don't know any other practitioner is doing per se. I before I even engage with a cannabis client. I have about a a 15 to 30 minute little call with them to find out, hey, you know, I'm not for everybody. You're not for everybody. Kind of, you know, what's your, what's your, what are your thoughts about these things? You know, what do you want to do? Do we want to engage? What's your basic high level story? Breaks the ice. Free, because that's what people expect. I don't (laughs) do, I don't do very much free. Fuck free. No, I've spent, we only thing we, the only inventory we have people is our knowledge. Get paid for it. So, and that's been hard to come to, especially as a woman in this industry, where I'm pretty sure, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I don't know one of my male colleagues that's ever been called sweetheart. Oh, we could have the whole conversation about this because I've, I've yep. been called I'm up doll to like and, 10. Yeah. I fired a client over it, one of it, so to his face. So, you know, you have to kind of be fearless in a lot of ways, but I have this quick little call because... I require a two-hour paid initial consultation in either person or Zoom by all of the people that have either put money in, own it, make monetary decisions, or have any influence. And that's how I bridge it. I have a two-hour structured initial consultation where at the end, I mean, which basically starts with, you tell me your origin story and I'm going to shut up. Because it's amazing when you let people talk what they'll tell you see as an attorney that I'm not having like a visceral reaction right now because like sometimes I don't want to know. Right. So I, I think that's, yeah. That guess I think what? They'll take my license if I don't know. I'm not filing a tax return. I don't want, I don't want my pants around my ankles. I would rather know. And at the end of it say, you have enough issues, sir, that you need to consult an attorney. Let me give you four references. You need to work out this, this, and this. And this is the position I would take on your tax return because you have this, this, and this issue going on. And if you don't want to engage because you don't like my tax position, you paid me for my two hours, going to get paid and don't let the door hit you on that or have a nice day. Mm -hmm. So we don't engage. We find, we issue spot. We find it. You don't look, you don't just say, oh, cannabis business. Great. I'll take you on. Oh my God. No, I have had people build million dollar facilities with untaxed money. And at the end, I find it when I'm putting the fixed assets into a tax return and I have to stop and go back to how many prior year tax returns do I have to do to make sure I can get 2018s put on? Or I'm not going to put a million dollar facility on your books and let you depreciate it because you didn't pay taxes on that money. And so this is this is a great, actually kind of a great transition because one of the things that you're talking about is that, you know, having this experience and understanding what your clients need to know 
Yeah. One of the things that I find kind of interesting, as I had mentioned to you uh, before we had started the show, is that I have noticed, especially in a tough economy, where in these states, these new states, where cannabis is becoming legal, yeah, that there's a Real lot easy. of folks who are like, you know what, revenues are down because some of my prior clients have closed their doors or whatever because of uh, the pandemic. I'll take up cannabis. And I find that really interesting because you're talking about saying no to clients at a time where other people are saying yes. And so I'm kind of interested in your take on, because obviously the answer can't be, and this is always the, the dilemma, right, of any professional is that you can't, you can't say, don't do this if you don't have any experience because you have to get the experience. Exactly. Before, right. So like, what do you tell folks or what's your reaction when people say, there's a new dispensary that just opened up down the street from me. I'm going to go see if I can get their work because my, the restaurants are all closed. Like, how do you, you know, it's, it's a risky thing for professionals, not just the businesses. So what kinds of things would you tell accountants and attorneys and people in the practice, not just the clients, but like, what would you tell people who have interest in being in the practice? Like, is, is it scary? Is it for everyone? Is it something you can learn easily? Like, what what do people need to know if they're kind of thinking, you know, I know this guy, I probably could land him as a client? That is a great question. I do tax education in cannabis for exactly this reason. <laughs> I came from a firm, a public firm for seven years where we did a lot of audit. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of tax practitioners or CPAs these days don't do audit and they don't have that audit brain, which I think is similar to an attorney's brain looking mm -hmm. for issues and fact spotting. I think you start slow and you, the whole point is you don't believe the hype, do your own independent research, educate, 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 educate. If you have not read the only about 10 or maybe 12 tax court cases related to cannabis, Harborside is not unknown to most people. Harborside right. is the largest cannabis dispensary in the world. They currently have something like a $115 million tax judgment against them because they didn't want to apply 280E early on. They have been in tax court since 2012. They are the OG granddaddy of this. I interviewed them years ago on this. They're fascinating. It's a fascinating case. I've tried to, you know, talk to anybody over there and they don't do that because I'm just a little whoever I am, right? But there are the, the Champs case, the Olive v. Commissioner case. There are tax court cases that give us not a bright line, but they give us an idea of what the service looks at when it doesn't understand what the industry is doing <laughs> either. Mm -hmm. And you remember, tax practitioner, you're producing the truth you sign your name to that you hand to the IRS because you are guilty until proven innocent in the tax court because you gave them, air quotes, the truth on a tax return. So you'd better be able to sleep at night, period. I mean, that's why I'm not an auditor anymore is because I I mean, even as a staff auditor, I, you know, sometimes tie outs would, would keep me up at two o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, you need to educate, you need to read those court cases, you need to see what is coming down at what has come down for this industry, which is going to give you, I would hope, the ability to see where they're going to hide from you, where they're going to hide their money, where they're going to be tolerant. And then you need to research your state's medical rules 
because again, this is not a new industry. This is an emerging, this is emerging only because it's coming out of the shadows. If your state, Oregon's had uh, medical cannabis since, you know, 1998. <laughs> They've had a fully blessed gray market by the state of Oregon with cards and rules and regulations and all that sort of stuff that's been, that that's created an, an existing flourishing economy. That economy is trying to step into the regular industry they a regular economy with taxes and business and the like, and they're looking for an advocate. They're looking for someone that's willing to come down to their level, spend time with them early on. I used to spend hours and hours and hours with my clients unpaid back in 12, 13, 14. I go to every client's site. If you hire me, I will be at your dispensary at some point. I will be at your farm. I will be at your manufacturing operation. You will walk me through. You will show me your fixed assets. You will do. We will make a list. I think that's important for all professionals. I think you that tax professionals back. should know what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. You have to, but the but CPAs have done this same as prior year. Or oh, I I talk to these cl- my clients once a year. Or I have tax season and then I don't do anything for the other six months. If I haven't talked to one of my clients in about three weeks, they're up to something. <laughs> and I better get on it because I'm going to have an unbelievable problem I'm going to have to unwind in four months because they move so quickly and they're willing to take such risk. I have never seen more people make three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollar deals where cash actually changed hands on spit and a handshake. Wow. And then expect to go into court and get it back when it goes bad. Right. That's one of the things is, and as it applies to attorneys too, is that there's so much that you have to be wary of. It's not just the two the the two eighty e expenses. There oh, are other the issues, right? It's the behavior, and, right? Exactly. So that's and why I do this initial how, consultation. Right. That initial consultation is literally the foundation to my work. I teach two. When I teach, I have two sections. I may I actually I just pared it down to one, but I have two sections that are the initial consultation only, and people. The ladies that I just taught in my last class were grousing at me. They're like, why do we have to talk about this? Why are we talking about initial consultation? And I'm like, when we get to the tax return, I'll show you. And by the time we got to going through what is in cost of goods and how do you educate your client and manage that? And when you put it on a tax return, where you do what you have to do, they were like, oh my God, I see why you have to, you talked to your client this much in the beginning, because let me assure you, you need to have your gut in the room. And if you don't like that person now, you're going to hate them when you hand them a $600,000 tax bill. Right. And they're going to hate you. And you're going to have wasted time, valuable time bringing up and cleaning up a client that's not, that's going to leave, that's going to CPA shop you. So work with people that actually want to do it right. Everyone will tell you they want to do it right. But after two hours of sitting in the room with me, I'm going to know if you're going to do it right because we haven't engaged yet. And I get to say everything I need to say to you before, and you get to get used to how I communicate, that I will communicate, and what my tax return position is. No, I'm not going to let you deduct your license as a dispensary. I don't care that you paid $10,000 for it. You just, you, sir, chose to sell cannabis for a living. I, sir, chose to create tax returns for a living. I am not illegal. You are illegal, no matter what you think. Right. <laughs> Again, it's it's an interesting... I think place to be as a CPA, especially because, and attorneys as well, especially because we're kind of moving into this age of uh, multi-jurisdictional, yeah. 
practice. And that's, I think, another kind of potential pitfall, because when you think about accounting firms, and when you talk about the numbers that you're talking about, you have the sense that these folks are going to want to go to, you know, some of the the bigger players, right? Because that's the way it works. I know in the law, like you, you often want to go to a bigger firm because you feel like they'll have like more understanding of the issues. What if I also want to put an office in San Diego as well as Philadelphia, as well as Miami, right? Sure. But but that's not the case in, in no. cannabis, which is really, really fascinating to me. So can you kind of maybe give us the 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 short version of why that doesn't work the same way? Like why why can't I in Pennsylvania uh, do a tax return for somebody in Oregon who is has a, a cannabis dispensary? I'm not sure that you can't. I don't. Why shouldn't I? I don't do work outside of my state because, again, I understand the state of Oregon. And, you know, I could do a federal tax return for anybody anywhere because the federal position is the same inside of all of the United States. But the state position is different for every state. So if you are all and I am a a, a practice of five because big players will not touch cannabis. There is not a large or even mid-sized regional firm in Oregon that works with cannabis. I'm like one of the biggest and I'm tiny. I don't do multi-state operations because I would fail at that. I know that I can't be all things to all people. And I do not know enough about a California state tax return, which has been disconnected from the federal return since 2015. I do not know enough to be able to do all over again that state tax return. And the state tax returns really have a lot more nuance because I, uh, in Oregon, at least there's a subtraction for the federal cannabis expenses. You couldn't deduct on your 10, on your, you know, business return. Well, you get to deduct it at the Oregon state return, which produces a disconnect. And the state of Oregon is on top of cannabis people for its sales tax, at least sales tax being a huge issue being in Oregon simply because we have no sales tax except on cannabis. <laughs> so you have sales tax reporting. But, you know, as a as a New York firm doing work for maybe a California business or a Colorado business or an Oregon business, you probably do have the state experts. But do you really know what your client's doing? Have you flown out there and actually seen that? Have you talked to those clients enough? Because the movement and ground is is quicksand. I call working with cannabis clients um, like running on a waterbed. They are doing stuff not in traditional means. These people can't bank for the most part. Right. So when you're dealing with a multi-state operator that's doing, I don't know, $20 million in cash, how exactly as the CPA do you feel good signing your tax uh, the tax return saying, yep, the cash on hand is this amount. I didn't understate income. I didn't overstate expenses. I didn't miss an entire $10 million they sold out the back door. Can you talk about the banking? Because I actually think that's something a lot of people don't know about. Because And I know about this as it, as it related at the time to Harborside, actually. That was one of the, the bits of that interview all those years ago. What is the banking challenge? Like, simply? So put? the banking challenge is that because this is a federally illegal business, on, you know, it is because the Controlled Substances Act makes cannabis a Schedule One drug. This is a federal drug dealing operation. These are drug dealers in the eyes of the IRS. And because they are not, not to stray too far into politics, but they're not blessed drug dealers by the IRS, they are not allowed a banking privilege because 
the banking rules, which have really tightened up, would mean that if banks or credit unions per se accept those funds, they too are engaging in a potential money laundering scheme. Mm-hmm. So banks, have, for the most part, have chosen not to accept cannabis funds. There are credit unions in in Oregon, at least, and I think sort of a smattering of them all over the country that are beginning to take that position. But they are having to deal with 8300 forms. They're having to deal with bank secrecy acts. They're charging, you know, my, cl- my clients are charged $500 minimum to have a bank account. And then depending upon how much cash they are depositing into those areas and how much those uh, those those credit unions have to sell back to institutions because they can't maintain that much cash on their on their premises they you know they they are charged then a cash fee so you know you could have a $1200 a month easily banking bill being handed to someone who um is used to dealing in cash and doesn't want to pay a bill to anybody anyway <laughs> and right. never had to before these stupid rules came out so why would they do that they'll just keep all their cash on hand well as soon as there's $500,000 in cash in a safe somewhere you have an entirely different set of problems yes and as a CPA i've had to go to my own credit union and have conversations with them to say i work with the cannabis industry do you, will you take my funds? I've been paid and had to issue 8,300 forms for $15,000, $17,000 in 20s in my office. Ah, you know, it's freaky. We never freaky. see that much cash. So the fact that your client can't bank may in fact influence whether you can bank CPA and so, you know, or ta- or lawyer. And so you have to be, you have to educate, 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 research about whether or not you want to expose that risk to your practice. My my credit union and I have an agreement where I, every year, <clears throat> every year, every two years, disclose the number, the amount of my income that's coming from cannabis. And I keep it under about 15% of my practice for reasons, because right. it reduces their risk. Sure. I never thought about it affecting uh, the, the professionals that way. Yeah. So they can't bank. And so what is the what's the cornerstone, holy grail of accounting? The bank statement. We don't educate our clients to keep their receipts and pay attention to how they're spending their money and keep every little scrap of paper because, you know, their bank, they'll just charge it with their card. These people have no cards. Right. They have it's- an ATM that they're winging back and forth or they're spending, they're paying their entire landlord $15,000, $17,000 a month in rent. And then the landlord doesn't want to, you know, disclose that money. There is still this fallacy in the United States that I thought was gone because I was working with regular businesses until I got into cannabis, which is you don't pay taxes on cash. You don't pay taxes on cash. We just I've worked with a lot of restaurants. So we have that discussion quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You don't pay taxes on cash. So, you know, that and um, almost all the clients that I see that come in from un, from indigent or, or criminal defense attorneys that refer me clients, because defense attorneys are the people who have access to these new businesses because they've been defending them for years. They are the trusted professional in mm-hmm. most of these cannabis businesses worlds, not a CPA, but their defense attorney they have on retainer and have for decades. <laughs> so if you want to find these clients, you go make friends with defense attorneys 
and and then they will refer you clients. But those defense attorneys make LLCs and tell their clients that they are protected now because they're a corporation. So, you know, educating attorneys also helps with the clients, the CPA risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also helps making sure that those those attorneys aren't saying, oh, yeah, go get a bank account. Just go. Just don't tell them. Go go to Bank of America. Just don't tell them. I mean, I have met I have met some remarkably unscrupulous attorneys in this pile that I I would just did again, maybe I was Pollyanna about like, well, you have a professional license you don't want to lose. Well, apparently <laughs> they're a lot less risky, you know, conservative than I am in most arenas. Well, th- this is one of the reasons I always tell um, my colleagues and folks that I work with and my clients that I think having a team yeah. is really, really important because that, you know, sometimes the lawyer knows stuff that the CPA does not. And sometimes the CPA is the one saying, don't do what the attorney just told you, but here's why. Yeah. And I think that that's really, it's smart. It's, uh, you know, we, and we've talked about this on the program before about, you know, sometimes it, you need the separate bookkeeper and you need the separate CPA and you need Absolutely. the separate attorney because all of those people are also extra pairs of eyeballs for you yes. that can look and see like something coming down the road that might be yes. concerning or something that, yeah. So it's, it's, it's so breaking in my opinion it, to not have that, you know, I have, in the very early days of my practice had to be all things to all people. And I have unwound more attorney work that people paid so much for back in 2011, 12, I, you know, attorneys trying to service the newly like race to get a business and a license. We're charging $5,000 to make an LLC. Of course. Yeah. That's a hundred dollars at the social, at the secretary of state to do that. Mm-hmm. It's egregious and it's wrong. And then people show up and they go, oh, I'm a business now, but I haven't, you know, uh, I incorporated, uh, you know, in 2011, sir, you've been, you've had a medical cannabis business since 1998. You've never filed a tax return a lot, you know, like, you got to talk about that. Well, do you think kind of along those lines, and you talk about license and and things becoming more um, normal, I'm air quoting the normal, but do you think that the IRS is doing, and, and I understand that this is a loaded question. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the that the IRS has got this all right or got this all wrong. But do you think that they're doing a better job trying to understand what's happening? No. And you don't? No, they don't okay. have to. They're the big stick. Come on, we're we're legal people, right? Like they make rules not because they have to follow them, but because they have the right to in, in, inflict them upon us. So you know, I mean shocker if anybody thinks that that is a you know an outlier position but i think anybody who's been that's watched the air quotes rules (laughs) be applied to their client under audit or you know in general and seen that there's a disparity between how stuff happens you get a letter ruling and you get to do it oh you get a letter ruling and we don't like your facts and circumstances no hey wait a minute (laughs) i think that the issues that come up are so nuanced and that this industry is coming is emerging differently again in Oregon than it is in Philadelphia than it is in New York than it is in Florida than it is in Texas than it is you know that there that the IRS is so underfunded and it is so using a uh, using a very big stick which is 280e to look at a very nuanced new business mm-hmm. and giving us no guidelines. So they get to pick off the cream, you know, they get to pick off the 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 bottom 
of the pile that just didn't apply 280E or clearly filed a fraudulent return or whatever to great monetary success. Those are big change order audits. They're winning. Why would they change? Why would they learn anything? The TIGDA report, I don't know if you know about TIGDA audited the IRS auditing cannabis. Oh, I haven't seen that report. They released, I'll send it to you. They released it, I believe in March, March 30 of 2020. It's fascinating. I encourage you to go read the TIGDA report, which is Treasury, the Treasury Department, taking a look at the IRS's audit clearance rate and their behavior with 2016 tax returns in Washington State, Oregon State, and the state of California. Now, Oregon and Oregon and California have um, stricter rules for uh, information sharing, but apparently the state of Washington doesn't. <laughs> and there are some huge takeaways, which basically said that about 60 plus percent of the change that happened in the tax returns that they audited and looked at was because of misapplication of 280E. Okay. Because they won't put a bright line down. They won't tell us what happens because if they do that, they mess up 471 or 263 cap A, or they mess up COGS for us because the service has has basically declined to state what is cost of goods sold They've just said, you get the return of your capital investment. We will start taxing you at incomes, which is gross profit. Right. So what I put in cost of goods sold is a facts and circumstance based analysis for every client. I have a standard chart of accounts that I start at, but it goes all the way down the rabbit hole because I have clients that are doing regenerative cannabis growing where they're putting llama poop. We're expensing llamas. (laughs) We're dealing with the, we're dealing with the, inputs, they don't buy or purchase any of their of their inputs on their nutrients and soils. And then I have people that are that are all the way in facilities that have three stacked building, three stacked grow rooms that are clean rooms. You put on booties and a whole thing and you get airbrushed down, even walk into that facility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a there those are different facts and circumstances and whether, you know, you are and so you have to walk the facility and understand that. And the IRS is not doing that. Back in 2015, uh, the CID guys were at an Oregon State um, update and the two new CID guys had come in from Vegas, were speaking, the Criminal Investigation Division. Mm -hmm. And they um, and I caught them after the talk and walked up and I was like, so I work with the cannabis industry here. And the guys were like, oh, great. That's fantastic. We're glad to see that anybody's willing to file tax returns for them. And I did (laughs) not expect them to be nice to me about that, right, ever. And I said, so how concerned are you about cannabis and busting down the doors of people? And they said, no, we just came from Vegas, lady, where we were dealing with the mafia and and their clearance rate, they are really protective of. And they don't deal with people unless, you know, somebody narcs other people out. But I was very surprised that they were like, we don't know. We don't know anything about this industry. We don't know anything about it. And they haven't given us any regulations. And so unless it's egregious, unless it strays into guns or other drugs or money laundering or that's where we care. So, you know, I'm like, interesting how you have if you if you can have conversations and take people to the conservative side of the pile and say, look. Everybody pays a pound of flesh to run a business in this country. I do. That's what business expenses are, right? Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like 
we pay a pound of flesh. We have to do compliance and file tax returns and pay payroll taxes and all this garbage that you guys have never done. When you don't keep your books and records, when you don't engage with professionals, when you don't get involved and have educated people on your team, you're going to pay two pounds of flesh. If you have educated people because of 280E, you're going to pay a pound and a half of flesh. Right. So make the decision or don't get in. I have absolutely had clients that have sat in my room and said, "We, this is our goal. This is where we came from. This is what we want to do. This is, these are, you know, these are our dreams and aspirations. And I have seen the 10 years of back tax work, the reconstruction of books and records, the um, immense tax bill that are coming in and their inability to be able to be compliant and want to go forward. They want to do this for two years and get out. And I've said, don't get in. Right. I, you don't, don't get in. Stop. I'm going to stop you right there. Don't get in (laughs) and don't tell me anything else. And if you want, I'm going to refer you to this tax attorney. And if they want, to, if you really are still serious about this, they can put me under Covell. Do you think as as more of these states are adopting laws that make cannabis legal, you know, there was um, a, a bit of a push last year to, to make that happen on the federal side. Oh, a lot. Cle- yeah. So clearly if, if that happens, that's a whole game changer generally. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think this is something that's gonna happen in the next few years? Do you think this is still a way off? Like if you had a crystal ball, what do you think? You know, it's funny because I've been saying since 2013 that we wouldn't legalize until that things wouldn't shake out until 2020. (laughs) And now we're (laughs) so close to 2020. I'm now more concerned about my prediction. I still think that the soonest we could see any substantive change from a tax standpoint is 2020. I think that that is now, uh, I think from a banking standpoint, I think I think we have to take incremental steps. So let me back up. This is a fail. This What we as practitioners are seeing and, and as the business people are experiencing is a failed drug war. So I think arguably all of the money and time spent on the federal drug initiatives have not stopped cannabis from growing or being smoked. Sure. So that's why I call it a failed drug war. I will not say that as a every all the drugs because I don't know. I just know cannabis. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't stopped anybody from doing anything. And they and a and the people that have really benefited from cannabis are people willing to not pay taxes and the mafia and the government. So you know why would that any if the government is benefiting at a hugely preferential tax rate why would they change? So unless you give the government and you have more enough political pressure which is beginning to start happening to require to to get the government to change its position it's not going to mm-hmm. and if banking could come in i think that is the that begins the true runway to decriminalizing or rescheduling cannabis the problem is cannabis is intermingled now in is it medical cannabis? Is it recreational cannabis? I hate that use, that word. Adult use is better because that's what we want is adults <laughs> to use cannabis, not recreational because kids want to be recreational. You know, if it is medical and you have a true medical issue related to that, are those two different things? Guess what? They're not. Cannabis is cannabis is cannabis is cannabis is cannabis. Right. Guess what hemp is? Cannabis. So there are plants that have been asked to do different things in the domestication cycle. And in, that makes it incredibly difficult for 
to ask the federal government to figure out a way to decriminalize tomatoes, basically. I can grow this in my backyard. You can grow this in your backyard. Other people can grow this and sell this and hand this. It's like, how do we how do we offer the a roadmap for the federal government to keep its ego intact and have a win, air quotes, to back out of the room on the failed drug war for cannabis? That's my goal to try to, when I talk to organizations that are doing political lobbying, go figure out a way to make the government win by backing out of the room and they'll do it. So I think the soonest that could possibly happen is 2022, maybe 2024, because tax code changes happen a lot slower than everything else. It doesn't feel like it, but it's true. So the Biden administration is not going to, is not a Hail Mary. Kamala Harris has put a shitload of people in jail for cannabis and has staunchly been anti-cannabis. Biden has been anti-cannabis the whole four years that he was with Obama and could have deregulated it then, but didn't. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of hope. And I think that there's also a very different kind of political pressure being able to be extended. But I tell my clients, until further notice, you're under 280E. Just if you can live on 50 or 40 cents of every dollar, because the rest of it could be taxes, you'll be here when 280E changes and you're going to be unbelievably profitable then. (laughs) Not now. Yeah. So keep keep on hammering. I tell people, you know, who again, you you asked back when, you know, how do I have the conversation with the 25 year old that thinks they're going to be a multimillionaire? bringing, you know, their little garage grow out into the light of day. I'm like, are you willing to work 90 hours a week for $35,000 a year for the next 10 years? Because that's cannabis when it's taxed. Right. It's $110,000 a year when it's untaxed. Well, and I think that the, you, we're seeing some of the, you know, the, the celebrity embracement of the industry. I, I think that's what people see. And they think that, and you mentioned the venture capitalists. I think there's this idea, which hopefully folks who are listening now understand isn't true, but there was this idea that it was easy money no. and that it was something that was, you know, there were just a few kind of bumps in the road, but it's clearly- There's no more. such thing as easy money anywhere. I think any professional worth their salt that's been in accounting at the very least for five years, two years, let's just say beginning. If it's too good to be true, people, like it's too good to be true, period. Right. It doesn't matter if it's cannabis or not. Like there, there are big winners. There, have, I have seen some big winners, and they just hit it perfectly, and they had luck on their side. And that's the same as every economy. I mean, right. you know, the dot com. How many Amazons are there? One. Right. <laughs> how many Amazons were there that are no longer? You know, it's that's how cannabis is. I mean, uh, there is no McDonald's of cannabis yet. It's true. It has not really been determined, is it a commodity because it doesn't have a market or is it a luxury item? Uh, we don't know. Uh, I think it, I think we will. We have a roadmap similarly to the prohibition of alcohol that you spoke about um, earlier. I think we have a roadmap to what it looks like when you take a volatile, passionate uh, substance that people feel very differently about out of the shadows and into an open market scenario where it's going to be syntaxed and it's really going to be regulated because it's trying to stamp out, you know, the illicit part of it. 
the government has a real opportunity. I was going to say that's an example, though, of the government winning. I mean, you you would, you know, the government ended up, took a while. Yeah, After of course. After it lost through prohibition, oh my yeah. gosh. But, but, but now, I mean, I've, I've written about it. I write about it every year on National Beer Day. And, you know, there's a lot of money coming into states and feds for the local governments. Schools get paid on, you know, uh, bar taxes. So, yeah. I mean, the major reason I got into working in cannabis at all was that I, I was having a conversation. I I worked back in, uh, when I was going through school for getting my post back for CPA, I worked at an indigent, I ran indigent criminal defense law firms. So I was seeing people getting put in 30 days of jail for having a joint. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, what a waste of my tax dollars for one. And then paying the indigent criminal defense contracts to be able to have those people be defended and clogging up the system. But I was, you know, when I left that and I and I came out and got a CPA and, and worked for seven years and, and the like, I kept in touch with all those lawyers. And as cannabis started coming forward, they were starting to have conversations with me that said, hey, would you be willing to look at this group? Would you be willing to look at this group? And I, I was like, ah, okay. So, you know, I, I sat down, I had a conversation with a dispensary owner and was like, wait, you make, you took $500,000 out of this business and you don't pay taxes. And he was like, who does the tax return for a cannabis business? And I was like, if it gets you to pay your fucking taxes, I do, (laughs) you know, I mean, ultimately I get down to like, it's not fair. Right. It's not fair that just because you, I mean, everybody's willing to take a risk and whatever, but this isn't a whole economy that doesn't have service providers. And so they're like, well, can't pay taxes. I'm like, mm, nope. Better to file a tax return and pay some taxes, you know, and find the way. But I mean, I amend tax returns. I amended that tax return I did for him. Mm-hmm. He was like, I'm not filing this tax return. I got, I took a loss. I'm not filing this tax return. He didn't come back, but I fixed what I needed to do. And I learned a very valuable lesson. Hey, I need to know more about this industry before I put my name on a tax return. Right. And that goes back to your position earlier on you have to know the client. Got to know the client. This has been fascinating. And if folks wanted to contact you and you wanted to be contacted, yes, please. <laughs> how would they find you? And I will I will definitely put this information in the show notes as well as that TIGTA report when you get it. I'll also link to that. In yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. The TIGTA report is fascinating. Um, because I do think it gives the true, one of the true insights. If you read in between the lines, it really shows where I are, the IRS is getting thumb screws. It, you know, they will respond. In the TIGDA report, they said, TIGDA said, you should write an FAQ and put it on your website and tell people about this industry because you've given them no guidance and you can't expect them to do a tax return right if you won't guide them. So what did they do? They put a silly FAQ on the irs.gov. You can go look at it and read it. It tells you nothing about what, but they responded to TIGDA. Mm -hmm. So TIGDA has some power there. Right. I am uh, getting ready to go into tax season. And so I'm a little bit busy, but I am an educator, a NASBA educator for tax, uh, cannabis tax preparation. I do a seven week cohort at the moxieaccountant.com. The Moxie cohort is um, the name of that. You can get me at moxieaccounting.com. I am on Twitter at PDX Cannabis CPA. I am on Instagram at Moxie Accounting. And I'm at Katie, K-A-T-Y-E, at moxieaccounting.com. 
And I really relish having conversations with other professionals that want to come into this space and do it ethically. Because as I say in my, uh, my education platform, you know, we, either the lawyers or the CPAs, are going to be the beneficiary of this awful work that's been not, that's been either being done or has been pushed down the road eventually. Mm-hmm. We might as well gear up now. We might as well suit up, educate ourselves, and really try to be proactive about helping people as they start in this industry or as they are, you know, transitioning as somebody's buying something and wanting to come into the industry and bring some savvy, Mm -hmm. getting those things cleaned up incrementally because the bill is awful to do seven years of back tax work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Well, again, thank you for your time. I know uh, tax season's right around the corner. So I do appreciate it. We all survive. Oh, Um, yeah. May it be a once in a career tax season, 2019 and 20. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So thanks so much. And I appreciate it. You're welcome. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.